Hi everyone, I'm Dalen, founder and design educator at Curious Core. Welcome to our Working in UX Design podcast series, where we interview a UX design leader in the industry on their experience in this emerging field. We've had UX professionals from Grab, AirAsia, Google, and more join us previously, and we're bringing you more exciting interviews this year. Stay tuned for this week's interview with our special guest, who is working in UX design. Benjamin has worked for different companies, including SauceBits, Fresh Menu, which is a food tech startup, where he led a small size design team uh, to improve the online food delivery experience, which actually stretch out to the whole of India. And today he is in Singapore with us. And he hits the design team shaping the future of customer retention with referral candy and candy bar. All right. So welcome, Benjamin. I'd like to just ask you the very first question, which is like, what do you do on a day-to-day basis at uh, referral candy and candy bar? Hi, Dalen. Yeah. Okay. You asked me such a difficult question right off the bat. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, oops. Sorry. I should have pre-warn you <laughs> day to day is very different depending on which day and which week <laughs> i think mm-hmm. um off late because it's the start of the quarter um mm-hmm. most of our day to days are right now planning roadmaps figuring out what are we are going to be focusing on as a product team what are we going to be focusing on as a design team and i think um, shaping the rest of 2021 early um, that's mm. usually what I'm doing right now. Okay, that's wonderful. Let's start with um, your journey because that's also one of the titles of our webinar. Like, mm-hmm. do you ever regret uh, dropping out of high school? Um, I don't think so. Because um, <laughs> when I was kind of learning what I enjoyed, in India, there's a common joke which you say that if you throw a stone, it's going to usually land on a street dog or an engineer. So it's okay. India is full of like engineers and like really good engineers and mostly doctors. Those are two safe professions everybody is going into. And so mm-hmm. when most of my friends were in engineering, I'm usually mm-hmm. was going creating art and doing graffiti and random stuff just exploring my creative side at that time slowly i realized that i had a inkling towards art and computers and that's what kind of led me towards uh, graphic design initially Mm. and i think one of the interesting things that you mentioned in your bio as well is that you spend your time painting murals Mm -hmm. and throwing clay over the weekends, uh, which means you do pottery. So when did this creative interest start, you know, manifesting in your life? I think from the time I can remember, from when I was maybe five, six, I think very early on, I knew I liked doing things with my hands. I was a a maker of sorts, made art, wrote poetry, various different kinds of things, whatever used to keep my brain engaged and that was something that, which I found interesting. And you said you wanted to join Pixar as a 3D artist initially, but uh, decide to kind of like uh, abandon that plan. Like what, what happened? Being a 3D <laughs> artist, isn't that also sort of like a creative discipline? It is. Um, the common analogy that I use is 
just because I like to eat food doesn't make me a chef. It was exactly mm. like that. I loved watching animated movies. Um, and as soon as I started learning the skill, I suddenly realized like there was a little less than what I imagined. I started looking at animated movies and constantly in my mind, I used to break them down. Oh, this is the technique that they use. This was the tool that they potentially could have used. And it lost the magic in animated movies for me. And apart from that, I also sucked at 3D. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> um, I love 3D objects, but building them and like then animating them and rigging the whole structure up was a pain for me. I, I just lost a little bit of the magic there, I think. I see. So what I hear you say is that when you start getting really deep into it and you started studying all that there is to know about uh, doing 3D animation, it, watching 3D animation films started to lose their magic. Yeah, it's just like watching a magician. If you know how the trick is performed, then you're just watching a guy doing what you are going to predict next. So. And you were mentioning like, uh, instead of actually enjoying the movie, you were like, you were judging them and you were kind of nitpicking what you were doing. In a way. <laughs> that's quite an interesting process I guess why graphic and web design then when you're sort of like transitioning to that how did you know that was something of your calling um, so in order to kind of expose myself I didn't know too much at that time where I learned 3D they also had a little bit of graphic design and doing posters and stuff like that and that was where I first got a little interested in uh, graphic and sound en engineering. So these were the two mm. things that initially got piqued my interest. And I decided to focus a little bit more on graphic. And there was a, a company that, that was interviewing at the time. And so as a graphic mm. designer, I went in there. I suddenly got the role of a web designer. That's when I realized whatever the job description says, ignore it because <laughs> what the job description says and what the company wants might be different so you want to try and take a, a chance mm, that's wonderful and one of the things i'm wondering is that how you know did you sort of progress along the way because you're pretty much self-taught you know like how do you learn these stuff on your own right by being self-taught hmm. i think generally i'm a very curious person I usually like to understand um, how did this thing come about? Why did that handle of a teapot look like that? I think one of my earliest memories is we bought a refrigerator at home. And um, the the way the refrigerator was positioned, I could only uh, open it in one way and it used to block the aisle. And I kept wondering, you know, why didn't they just get allow people to choose refrigerators which open the other way? And that was my earliest memory or product design thinking that I used. And when I said got into the job, for one year I was just on my own. I was the first designer in the in the company, and just learning as I go, reading blogs like Abdu Zidu, and and stuff like that. So just um, teaching myself and trying to figure out what what trends were, what were they doing, and just learning learning on the job. Um, it was at the one-year mark when the company that I was working in also hired an Apple Design Award winner called Piotr. He's from Poland. Um, he was brutally honest and probably one of my favorite mentors. And so he taught me a lot of the things and the iPhone released at the same time and they came up with this massive human interface guidelines and things started surfacing, things about user experience and using psychology to make product decisions 
or design decisions was becoming more and more popular. And that's probably my journey. I stayed in the company for seven years because it was quite a big growth curve for me. Mm. Yeah, that's that sauce bits you, you were mentioning. It sounds like you participated in building over a hundred apps according to your, your bio. Wow, what <laughs> what is it like being an early designer of Apple apps and building so many apps, like what have you learned? Yeah, like I started this conversation with saying like there are many, many engineers in India, some really talented mm -hmm. ones. And so many of them were in this company as well. We used to build apps. It was a services company and we ended up doing a bunch of apps. And so in my early days, I started, I was a sole designer or working with another designer uh, building the products up. Later on, I started leading teams and mostly did lesser design and more leading and managing and stuff like that. A hundred apps mm. in seven years, we used to do about three to four apps in a month. And back then, like I think all of the designers were super packed. We used to have to work, I don't know, 12 hours in a day, 14 hours in a day to get this done. I wouldn't recommend it now. But it was that's, the agency that's life. That's pretty crazy. <laughs> wow. Yeah. And you work for some really great companies as well, such as Intel, you know, Coca-Cola, IBM, and even the U.S. Army. So, oh, yeah. wow. That's some really interesting companies there. What would you say that you learned about sort of designing over 100 apps? You know, like, is there anything we should learn or take note of? It's been so long. It's such a, such a long time ago. But yeah, I think that... <laughs> Uh, I remember writing something about the seven sins of mobile app design somewhere on my Medium long, long time ago. You have that. Um, you actually have an like, article called The Seven Sins. Uh, yeah. So, <laughs> that's so, that's yeah, awesome. There, there okay, go on. Uh, um, yeah, which... you, you don't have to name all seven. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's, it's about keeping it mysterious. So you can name two or three and then like everyone else will go to your Medium and read the article. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I feel like some of the stuff that... Um, at least in mobile app design, is that people struggle to keep it simple. So while while you're doing websites or maybe web apps, um, you have the liberty of screen estate. You can put in a little bit more, but with mobile, at least when the earliest phones came in and they were relatively small, um, it forced everybody, everybody on the team to kind of say, is this necessary? Is this necessary here? Um, and how would people use this product, what score to the product? And those questions were very important and into simplifying. Then there were other basic things like uh, people used to ignore onboarding. So sometimes people used to come into the app, it used to be an empty state, what do I do now? And they expected customers or users to guess and figure it out on their own. Now, Back then, maybe it might have worked because there were fewer apps, uh, maybe interest. But now I think if you don't capture them in the first few seconds, um, they have bounced, deleted the app, gone. So, And the other thing which I used to constantly have a, a pet peeve against was, I think, uh, overloading um, apps and like, making it super complex like you know putting like a bunch of things into or a bunch of features into an app and some of them you didn't know no evaluation to whether this thing actually makes sense or is actually making an impact i think that overloading a bunch of things were was a problem too 
Yeah, that sounds like uh, quite a number of synths. Uh, so we'll we'll definitely get your link and then we'll share it on our social media channels uh, because that sounds very valuable in terms of sharing. And I know you also spend your time uh, to mentor people, right? Uh, especially designers. And I was just wondering, as you're mentoring designers and you actually do open mentoring sessions, you do portfolio reviews and, and stuff like that. So if I recall correctly, we had this conversation where you actually mentored over 160, you interviewed over 160 candidates and 50 students in the whole of last year or something like that. Yeah. So well, <laughs> what got you to go like in this like mode of like just giving back? No, I think... The mentoring was about maybe 60, 70 um, people. The yeah. 160 that you mentioned was the number of people we interviewed for an open position mm. in the company. Mm. What got okay. me to go crazy is lots of people are, um, basically participated, gave in their portfolios, applied to the position uh, way more than I expected. And it was also around mm. the time when everything was starting to become remote we had opened our positions to be not just singapore specific and we had opened it up a little bit and so i think that got us a lot of people mm. so i understand that was sort of uh, what happened but what motivated you to keep doing it though okay so i think um very early in my career i realized how important having that mentor in my life was because I was self-taught and I was trying to figure out everything, my own paths, make my own mistakes and lots of trial and error, very iterative uh, process. And along the way, the mentor that I had and how he had developed me into becoming a, a smarter, better thinker and a designer, that definitely helped me. And I felt like this is one of those things which I would always like to pass it forward. Um, I realized that I had the privilege while I was uh, early in my career and it helped me. And so I feel like um, a lot of the designers right now, many of them want it, many of them are sometimes craving for it and they just don't know which direction to go to. And there are a lot of communities right now, which um, I'm part of and they're doing quite well in giving back to the community. Mm, that makes sense. So it's about kind of helping others because you've, you're now in sort of that senior position and you're able to do so. Mm -hmm. I think this was one thing that we wanted to talk about tonight was I, I was just wondering, like, what did you learn from interviewing so many people? Like, what did you notice are some of the common mistakes that people make when they're presenting their portfolio or like uh, coming into interviews with you? I feel like of the number of people, let's say out of the 160 that um, did interview mm. um, or did apply, maybe about 60 or 70 of them were from one or the other bootcamp. So one bootcamp or the mm. other. And so I feel like one of these uh, biggest problems, at least with bootcamp grads, is that it feels like most of them feel like there's a certain structure, seven things to do. And if I do all seven things, I'm going to get hired. Um, and I feel like if you were interviewing 70 bootcamp students, like when you start looking at the sea of the exact same format, everybody's using the same things. And many times you started seeing the same projects coming again. So uh, we, what we originally assumed um, to be uh, a single uh, person's project is actually a group project. And then it comes back uh, later on because it was a unique name or a unique identity or uh, maybe something else in terms of their product. 
and so that's when i started realizing that you know uh, maybe the common assumption is that somebody is if i've spent so much time uh, building my portfolio out somebody who's going to be reviewing it is going to be spending at least 15 20 minutes unfortunately that's not true most people are spending about 2 to 5 minutes per portfolio now that's what i hear too yeah, yeah. and so now that's a sad thing because yeah we know mm. we have you have spent time building this portfolio but that's the what the industry the reality we live in um, people are not spending time along with a bunch of other factors about uh, having short attention spans you want a portfolio to stand out and grab attention and so i feel like um, most people end up writing these novel length um, case studies and Mel Sweet another designer from um, Dropbox she gave me this thing which um, stuck mm-hmm. so she was telling me like how she differentiates senior versus junior designer and the example is of a, a toolbox now a junior designer might take all of the tools of toolbox to fix a table let's say but a senior designer would know okay i need just need maybe the nail and the hammer and i can forget the table fixed i think that um, differentiation is something that maybe people can look at even in the product design realm figuring out mm-hmm. okay certain products your focus is on a certain side of the the product and show relevant tools or approaches to the portfolio versus maybe some other product you might want to focus on maybe i don't know your visual design skills or maybe the research skills there's a lot of value being said out here i just want to take a minute to sort of like summarize a, a few of the things that you said mm-hmm. uh number one, you said uh you see a lot of sameness mm-hmm. in the bootcamp graduates in their portfolio and the reason is they assume that UX design is is a step one to step seven process right, right? so you have to do step one and that becomes really difficult to also differentiate who does what mm-hmm. uh because you're seeing the same pieces of work in this case so as a designer we should look at at least telling people what is our role if we we are doing a group project and also like trying to avoid that sameness now the second thing you mentioned is because hiring managers have so little time mm-hmm. uh reviewing the portfolio we should not design our portfolios to be read in 10 to 15 minutes but actually uh within 2 to 5 minutes so the important points should all be there and we should treat it like designing a product mm-hmm. so the last thing that you mentioned was that the difference between a junior designer and a senior designer is the ability to differentiate what tools to use right so as designers being conscious of mm-hmm. not just treating every problem as a nail and using a hammer to nail it down uh but actually understanding what Uh, the problem is and using the appropriate tool to kind of fix that problem. Right. So Omar saying UX usually has a similar process. So does that mean we should stop showing our process and give a summary instead? Actually it's a good point. Showing a process for the sake of the process is never interesting. It shouldn't be done. Um because there are only two situations. Let's say that you're an experienced designer, you will have to curate and show the key parts it's maybe it was a 4 to 6 month project obviously it's not possible to show all of the stuff that you did in the 6 month but let's say figure out in that project maybe the research part is something that you did something different and you want to highlight that area the visual design maybe not so much and you don't want to highlight the process of how you arrived at that visual design alternatively have two different case studies in your portfolio one that highlights maybe um, research and one that highlights maybe how you arrived at the design details and the nitty gritties 
um, that could be another uh, way i feel like most people what they end up doing is start at discovery end at visual design so it's a very set checklist that people are going through figuring out okay what i need to put something in discovery section i need to put something for research i need to put something for qualitative or quantitative research and then work through the process show the the double diamond and then show how you went through divergent and then convergent thinking and then came up with the final product or the final design though in in the real world scenario it's never linear it's never going from start to finish in this one linear line and you produce it the only exception maybe is if you have a very short time and you're working for an agency setup where you're handing it off to an, a client and saying i'm done that might be a very linear process but usually in a product system you're kind of working on it in a very iterative way you kind of do research you arrived at certain maybe synthesis of research you are showing it with your team uh, figuring out um, what are the areas that you as a product you want to focus on what are the areas as a design team you want to focus on and then it's a very iterative um, approach to design mm. and that's i think usually lost um, in a portfolio or a case study yeah i i seem to hear this as well from some of the other uh hiring managers we work with as well as uh, mm-hmm. some of the um guest instructors we work with that storytelling or presenting that information in a very relevant way seems to be a big problem uh yeah. for junior designers but you know as a junior designer if i were to put myself in their shoes mm. like i don't know anything about the industry right? right and i'm coming into this new industry and i'm just like trying my best to copy like whatever people say is like the, the right way to do it and like i'm just following the structure and mm-hmm. and the given template and then i unconsciously get penalized for it cuz yeah. i i don't know any better right exactly. <laughs> so is there a better way to do this than knowing that like, someone is yeah, really so, new to uh, this i feel like uh, initially everybody tends to in- imitate which is okay you want to you don't want to stand out from a status quo you want to imitate whatever else and the other people in your bootcamp is doing or other designers in the industry are doing when you're building case studies but i feel like some of the strongest case studies or the strongest portfolios that i've seen are very specific about what they are trying to say so there's two things that they do very differently at least from the patterns that i've observed everybody says say a better story it's a little vague like how do you exactly say a better story like you know for example what if you like action movies and you prefer that kind of uh, maybe plot versus somebody who likes a drama and prefers a different type so it's a very subjective thing what i do recommend is starting from the end so usually you want to set your audience up with what it is that you achieved at the end it could be in you could be talking in numbers you could be talking in maybe final designs maybe prototypes something along those lines because that's when you have or somebody who's viewing your portfolio case study has the maximum attention uh, if that's impressive they might be more invested in trying to figure out oh that looks interesting or that data point seems interesting how did they get there and then they navigate through the case study or the portfolio and hopefully this is not a novel length case study if it's short if it's confident usually it maybe engages the audience in a certain way um keeping sections not expanded by default because that makes it super long i understand there's so much of information maybe some golden nuggets in there that you don't want to part with 
you usually maybe put it under uh, maybe a, a clip, maybe, you know, expand section or something like that. Maybe even you can have data on to how many people actually click that expand. Maybe you might find it interesting, but other people on your portfolio are not clicking on it, which most likely means they're not interested in it. And the other thing is, I think if you're new in the field, there's only one way to um, go up is to speak to people who have been there where you want to go. So if you're trying to go to a, a company, a massive company in the industry, try and speak to people who are already there, who are already working there, who've gotten hired there. So obviously they have an idea of what the process was like, what kind of portfolio did they showcase to the the hiring managers then. And then you can work backwards from there. Mm. That's good advice. And I think this would be helpful for future designers to to keep in mind. And, and I give this, share this piece of advice uh, with my coaching clients as well, right? Beginning with an end in mind, it's, it's super, super important. One of, one of the things I think we spoke about briefly as well was this idea of as a designer, you're going into design interviews. I, right. I think we have two gripes here. I mean, mm-hmm. one is my own gripe. One is your gripe. So my gripe is like, all the JDs just say, hey, you need two to three years of experience mm. <laughs> as a junior designer, which is really odd mm-hmm. to me. Um, that's my gripe. And then your gripe you, know, you were mentioning is like design managers shouldn't give people take home assignments, mm-hmm. uh, but rather they should give them like a whiteboard exercise or uh, something like an app critique or something like that. Mm-hmm. So tell me a little bit more, like what's your gripe on that? Actually, uh, I think I share your gripe as well. Uh, in terms of uh, companies or uh, hiring managers having two to three years of experience for a junior role. Now, where do they yeah. expect to get this experience if they can't get any experience? <laughs> so exactly. it's a problem in the industry. And constantly when I'm talking to people, other uh, hiring managers and stuff like that, I try to talk them out of this particular decision. And uh, I think the the concept is they want to try to be safe. If they can see maybe one or two work, they can then make a safe bet that, okay, we can hire this person without any or lowering the risk. I feel like you don't need to put experience for that. You need to put work for that. Uh, maybe they could have done freelance or maybe they could have done something else on their, on their personal project or something like that. And so this definitely is a problem in the industry. Yeah. And um yeah, so uh, we recently did hire a designer. You know, she didn't need to have any previous experience. And it could still be come into the company, start contributing, and um, she's doing very well right now. But this is a problem. And my gripe is with take-home assignments. Mm. Mm. I think the only exception to take-home assignments is if you get a, a candidate uh, and they have zero portfolio, they have zero existing work, and nothing to talk about. And then there's no way for uh, somebody who's hiring to figure out, well, how do we evaluate you? What do you evaluate you? What are your skills, strengths that we can then see if you can start contributing to our team or not? I feel like that might be the only exception, but that's just a minority. Most of the people usually have one project, maybe from a college or one project from a boot camp, at least even one project um, that is live. And so take-home assignments, the, the biggest gripe that I have against this is that they expect candidates to take time out of their probably already busy life to spend some time on the company. And the logic they use is that, hey, if you are willing to spend 48 hours to five days spending on my problem that I'm giving you to solve, 
you might be worth hiring and that's a completely flawed logic um, imagine if you were having a, a carpenter come in home and um, you have four different chairs and you say hey why don't you come in and fix one chair and if you do well i'll give you the other three chairs to fix so nobody in skills trade works this way <laughs> and we are expecting uh, different of our designers and so that's my biggest problem i think um, yeah and i i i fully agree with you and i think some companies even take it to another level mm-hmm. where they actually pass the designer actual problems that they are solving so in this case the designers doing work for free for the company or multiple design exactly. candidates are doing work for free for the candidate which is actually kind mm-hmm. of unethical and reminds me of being in the advertising industry where we are doing uh, no no paid spec work <laughs> for clients <laughs> uh, which i thoroughly do not enjoy yeah. um so yeah I, I think that's that's really the situation over there so what's the alternative right uh, as a hiring manager you know what kind of alternatives have you used to determine the capability of a candidate mm-hmm. oh another very important point which i forgot to say mm. take home assignments are don't um, cater to inclusivity if you're a single mother taking care of kids and then you have to do take home you might be able to spend maybe i don't know a couple of hours versus somebody who's able to spend 40 hours on this take home obviously the d- results might be different and then you start hiring a certain type of people so a certain group of people and that's so bad for diversity and inclusion so i think that's another thing that i i, I miss um, speaking about mm, that's true too so i feel like um, the approach that we use is not perfect but we try so the approach that we use is try to make it fair as a base and so we say that okay you know what if everybody who's interviewing at the company who goes past the first few um, rounds of interview everybody gets these two things which is a portfolio presentation and a, a whiteboarding exercise so the portfolio presentation is a good place where we can try to understand okay what did they do in the past um how long was the project who did they work with they get an opportunity to talk to us about how was it working with engineers with marketers or or customer support the opportunity that's missed is usually they talk about the product alone or the design alone you're missing lots of opportunities of it's not work you're not designing this in a vacuum and you're missing the conversations and maybe some um sometime where you disagreed with uh, engineering and you still went about maybe disagreeing but committing and figuring out a certain solution at the end um so the portfolio is a good place where they can talk to us about many many different design decisions product decisions what did they how did they contribute maybe um outside of their um design role as well and this is like after how many interviews uh, we're talking about um so like um, i think the first design round is a portfolio mm. presentation Okay, right. Okay, got it. So, it's just after maybe one one or two mm, conversations, okay. yeah. Okay. Sounds good. And then you were saying there was another step to yeah. the process where so, uh yeah. after we figure out the portfolio presentation, we do the portfolio presentation a couple of days after, we do the whiteboarding session. So, whiteboarding session is because like everybody is constrained with one hour or one and a half, half hours where they are given a certain design brief. and then they are expected to solve the problem um, or at least um, show us the approach and the thought process to going ahead to solve that problem now we know very well that one hour is no, nowhere close to enough time to solve a relatively vague problem it is also uh, maybe not super fair for maybe if somebody is introverted 
and they can't think on the spot and they prefer like you know t- going under a, um, a rock and figuring out and processing all of this uh, information and then presenting so we have a few different systems in place to try to help a few different situations so i feel like um, one of the things with the whiteboarding is that we don't repeat the problem more than once so the hiring manager namely me is the only person who knows about the the design brief a day before a candidate comes nobody else on the um, the design team knows about this what the problem is going to be so immediately it puts everybody at the fair understanding of the problem nobody has an um, expert solution ready or they have um, looked at five different candidates trying to solve a problem and they already have some biases in their mm-hmm. minds and so that's something that uh, we try to do um, intentionally make sure that everybody is given the problem at the same time and the other one that we also do is usually in a whiteboarding it's always me against everybody else in the room i'm trying to work uh, through a problem or try to approach it in a certain way while everybody else in the room are looking at me and judging me and evaluating me so what we try to do is we assign another designer on the team to become their partner so now they are both involved into coming up with the best solution the designer along with the candidate is equally assessed uh into why did they go figure out a certain design decision or how did they decide that this is the approach that they want to do how intentional were they and sometimes we know that maybe somebody needs a little bit of help getting started maybe just if they get started they can then come up with some interesting ideas and talk to us about the process and the approach and so they sometimes giving hints uh helping them manage time telling them oh you know we have um, 15 mm-hmm. minutes remaining do you think that we have enough time for taking up five other use cases or should we just focus mm-hmm. on one those kind of stuff which um, help uh, the participant along the hiring process the whiteboarding challenge as well i really like how inclusive this process sounds and and the fact that you also are willing to invest time and resource in the candidate mm-hmm. and and not just have the candidate invest their own time and resource in the company and i i think that's very nice but i'm also concerned like let's say i'm a hiring manager i don't have a lot of time mm-hmm. you know is this only reserved for like your your top 3 or top 5 candidates where you do the whiteboard challenge with them it's true if you're measuring efficiency through person hours you want to save this for candidates that look promising maybe at least from the process that you put in place before things like maybe um, we initially have candidates fill in a questionnaire so sometimes mm. they tell us a little bit about their journey there then they talk to us about portfolio presentation and then they do the whiteboarding so it does take some time but my challenge to hiring managers is you're trying to build a better team you're trying to build the future of your team and trying to grow your team and maybe even your metrics or your performance review depends on um, your team the product that you do um, and the the work that you yeah, do yes. um, mm-hmm. if you can't invest in the first step which is hiring a good candidate that's like almost like the structural foundational level thing and if um, if you are saying that oh and what i have two weeks to do this you're most likely going to get somebody with only some amount of information and so that might sometimes work out for you in a lucky situation and sometimes it might not and so what we try to do is be more intentional with who we are hiring and how we go about it 
and as you're sharing this, I also reflect as a business owner as well, right. like in, in terms of how how we should be more intentional in terms of our hiring and uh, being being more rigorous in that process because really good people do make a difference in the organization, and they do deliver exceptional results exactly. in this case. We have a question from the audience, Anik, who is based in Singapore. Mm-hmm. He is asking you, like, how many projects would you recommend a UX designer or aspiring UX designer put in their portfolio? Uh, and then I'll ask the second question later. The short answer to this is it depends. <laughs> how many good projects do you have? <laughs> I feel like if that you have um, one good project, just showcase the one. If you have three, then showcase three. There isn't a set number, I think. Curation is as important as case study itself. Making sure that, okay, you know what, you understand. And maybe if you have a portfolio around and say, okay, you know what, you'd spent 30 minutes talking about one project and then talk about another project for five minutes saying that, you know, I know that this is not my best work, but I still want to talk about a certain challenge in project B. It shows self-awareness. It shows that, okay, you understand and you have taste and you care about doing good work. And for some reasons, maybe beyond your control or maybe within your control, you uh, weren't able to get your best work in Project B. And I think that that is a, a level of awareness any organization would be happy to have. Um, there are so many different types of soft mm. skills that is not evaluated through how good you are in Figma or how well you can conduct or facilitate surveys or do user research. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So Anik is also asking, what kind of designers actually thrive in the UX in uh, design industry since you've been in this industry for a while? Mm. I feel like UX designers generally seem to be thriving in the industry. We are in a very premium, very privileged um, space in the tech, uh, and we shouldn't forget that. Um, we already are in the the premium section of the tech. I think engineers too are in the tech space are very well treated for the most part. And um, I feel like the designers that thrive, uh, it depends on the type of organization you're aspiring to be in. If you are aspiring to be in a a smaller organization, startups, um, younger organizations, designers that are generalist, usually thrive in that ecosystem. If you're in a larger organization, specialists usually thrive. People who are experts in certain aspects of design or certain industries, those kind of characteristics are usually valued at larger organizations. Yeah, that's a that's a good rule of thumb. Uh, any specific, um, I would say, attitudes or characteristics that you notice of great UX designers you work with? I think that um, one of the things is... Uh, curiosity or um, in some ways uh, uh, wanting to know the why behind maybe a product decision or maybe a design decision. Um, One of our company values is searching for the truth. And so I feel like that plays very well here because um, searching for the truth is a characteristic that usually people are hungry. People aren't happy with superficial answers and they want to dig a little bit deeper into the the root of why um, a decision was made or why a business chose um, approach a versus approach b and i think those are some attitudinal stuff that usually sticks with me and whenever i'm like evaluating designers also i'll be like oh that point that they made uh, it stuck with me and i i uh, it got me even thinking or they challenged something that i thought i knew 
but actually don't. And that's an interesting equation and a conversation to have and go back into the next, let's say, one-on-one and say, you know what, the point that you brought up was pretty good. I didn't have the answer to that then, but I feel like I have a better answer now or a better decision now. The other thing which is maybe usually uh, very underrated is communication. Being able to communicate verbally in a written format, facilitate conversations, being able to build trust with your team and teams around you or around the design team is probably very important into getting your designs finalized and to get it into the market. That's some really good advice, Ben. Uh, Thanks for sharing that. Uh, And also, I believe in curiosity. It's a really important trait uh, designers should have. Now, we have a general question from Rupali. So she's asking if you're mentoring for ADP list right now. Um, They updated their website recently, and I haven't had the chance to update my mentor profile, but I hope to be able to do this this weekend. And yeah, I am uh, using adpdesign.org, and I have my Calendly link in my LinkedIn where anybody can go in and find the slot. Yep, that's right. Uh, I I think people are welcome to reach out to you on LinkedIn. Uh, and I, I see that Calendly link very, very visible. <laughs> it's like the first thing I see on the LinkedIn profile. So right. I'm sure you'll be getting quite a number of requests um, after this uh, webinar as well. And and uh, yeah, Nura, Nura asked a question, I mean, which you just answered as well. Like, is having a degree a requirement uh, or nice to have in order? I... <laughs> yeah. From my experience, I felt like most of the companies say that degree or some of the requirements will be like degree mm-hmm. or masters or, or bachelor's or, or interaction master's design or, or human computer interaction in the field yeah, of right. design. I've applied to them. I've gotten through the rounds, so I don't think that degree is super important. But if you are maybe relocating, the government places a higher weightage on degree in design for visas and whatnot as compared to maybe companies. Oh, that, that is actually quite an interesting point <laughs> because I'm sure it was not an easy process to get you here in Singapore considering how uh, how Singapore mm. values like degree holders. Exactly. So, how, do you want to share a little bit like how you managed to sort of get through that process? Um, so like while I don't have like a, a degree in design or any relevant field, I do feel like I have a, um, a bachelor's in visual com which i done on the side part-time right. so you, you did a part-time uh, uh, yeah uh, distance actually through distance is something that i um, did for the longest time and so it was why did i do that i think it was just to stop my mom from nagging me i think that that was probably <laughs> one of my this thing uh, for actually going ahead and doing that <laughs> we understand moms moms know it best <laughs> So yeah, I, I think I think that's quite a valid thing. I, I actually did my own part-time degree on the side as well. And it's for the very same reasons, uh, because I, I thought when I was much younger, I thought I may want to work overseas in future. Mm. And this was going to be like something that they would look out for. Yeah, so you, you're also advising Nura to just apply, uh, even though they have a degree requirement. You're saying like apply and ask for forgiveness later. <laughs> I, I love that attitude. I think that's kind of uh, great. Uh, we have another question uh, before we kind of wrap up. Rachel sure. is asking, what 
are some of the most memorable portfolios you have seen and what helps them stand out from the crowd? Okay. Yeah. I think this is commonly misunderstood uh, in terms of portfolio. What do you guys think is the objective of having an amazing portfolio, having an amazing case study? What do you hope to achieve? Uh, or what do you think that portfolio will achieve? Okay, great. We got, got our first answer. Capture, Capture the, the hiring, hiring manager's attention. attention. We get a few different things about displaying aptitude, uh, making a good impression. Okay, all fair points. One of the things that I feel a good portfolio just is like your free pass to get you through the door. To the door to the interview. Nobody mm. ever saw an amazing portfolio and said, I'm going to hire this person. That never has happened in my career or I've never hired anybody in the same fashion. I feel like, yeah, okay, something's about like, making a good first impression, catching attention, seems um, roundabout there. Take it to the interviews, probably what Raymond just mentioned is probably the best way to describe it. You want to showcase that you have a certain set of skills uh, things that the hiring manager is potentially looking for and you want to go and have a meeting with them, have a, a more detailed discussion about the project. It's in that discussion that you have where you start talking about the soft skills, the kind of decisions that you had to do, the kind of complex situations you have to navigate in order to get a design to go live or to go product to go live or ship something to clients. So I think that that's a commonly misunderstood thing because when you try to Put all of the stuff that you plan on having a conversation with into your case study. Guess what? The case study is going to become massive. You're going to have various different types of people. Recruiters are going to be looking at your portfolio and your case study. Hiring managers, other designers, designers that your peers, seniors, uh, maybe even juniors. Everybody's looking at it. You can't have one process that fits all, that gets the hiring manager's attention. And that's like designing a product that is for everybody. The target market is everybody. And that rarely ever happens. You need to cater your portfolios to a recruiter, to a hiring manager who you know is spending nowhere, uh, no more than maybe 30 to 40 seconds to about five minutes. So anywhere around this, which is why I again, highly recommend to start from the end. So if you are able to show the end result, maybe even some metrics that um, tie with the end result. Immediately, a hiring manager is like, oh, if I'm in a product company, I care about uh, metrics. This designer seems to be caring about metrics. On top of that, this design also seems to have a good output. If you're a researcher, show some of the uh, research outputs and catering your portfolio. If you've got maybe three case studies in your portfolio, don't showcase all three. If you're applying to... Um, maybe a product design position, a showcase something that is heavy, more heavier on the product design side. If you're in an agency, show something else, which maybe an agency setup requires. Mm. That makes a lot of sense. And I have two last questions for you. One sure. would be a continuation of Rachel's question. Who was the most memorable candidate uh, that you interviewed uh, that, that displayed great soft skills that you spoke about? <laughs> hmm. I'm trying to remember. Doesn't seem very memorable. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I know some good designers who have um, showcased some really good soft skills. And I can't remember them right off the bat over mm. the past month and a half, maybe, or maybe two months. I, mm -hmm. Okay, 
Uh, that's that's fair. What was it about them that demonstrated that uh, mastery in soft skills? Okay, so I feel like um that designer, she specifically spoke about some of the things that um, was complex and difficult for her to navigate way outside of the design realm. It wasn't anything to do with the technical side of design or even the the research side. It ended up like, you know, there was issues with the product manager and the engineer. And she had nothing to do with it. And she was supposed to be a junior to mid-level candidate. And so she had to step in and try to facilitate this discussion because they were at loggerheads and not getting anywhere with it and stuff like that. And it didn't have any point in terms of the project. But she still made it a point to show that, okay, there is a little bit of like people skills that she's strong in. and So it demonstrated facilitation yeah. and demonstrate a bit of problem solving yeah. in that process. Yeah. And the problem solving, not in the design realm, it was in the <laughs> working with people. Sometimes people yeah. don't get along and you may choose to disagree, but still go ahead mm. and push something out the door, ship something. That's great. Well, thanks for sharing that story. I'm sure this will help give some of the audience members here some indication of what good soft skills mean. The last question I wanted to ask you, you know, if you were to give any advice to your juniors or even to your younger self, you know, what kind of advice would you give him or her? Um, I feel like for all those people who haven't gotten a job and just out of boot camps um, or like, you know, are trying to transition and trying to apply to positions that you want to, I think generally interviewing is a very nerve wracking time. It's stressful. It's filled with like lots of insecurities or moments where you have, are filled with imposter syndrome. Maybe I'm not good enough. Maybe this, uh, this industry is not for me and lots of um, self-doubt, rejection and those kind of stuff. I feel like, stay strong stay true to who you are and stay confident because it's part of the journey rejection is part of the journey getting lots of no's in order to get a yes at some point is important if anything it builds grit and determination and that will make you a better not just designer but a person um, overall i think that's great and with that uh, grit and determination uh, will will end off the webinar. Uh, thank you so much Benjamin for all your sharing. It got really intense in the middle. Uh, <laughs> I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, please let me know what you think. Get in touch with me over email at mail at curiouscore.com. I would love to hear from you. Do also check out our previous interviews and other free resources at curiouscore.com. And until next time, I'll see you on the next episode. Take care and keep leaning into change.